I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they've believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. This morning... I wanted to engage a sermon, kind of a standalone sermon from John chapter 17 on missions. We're going to come back to our glory study next week from John chapter 17, but John chapter 17 is chock full of rich mission truths. There's four observations that I want to engage engage, that have to do with Christ being sent and his mission, God's mission, that translate to our mission. So we'll first unpack those four things regarding Christ's mission, and then we'll consider briefly the impact on our mission. First, we need to know that Christ was sent. In chapter 17, verse 18, it says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I'm going to give you some snapshots from the book of John. Just listen, because I'm going to be moving very fast, just reading some passages. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. Same chapter, verse 36, the testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
There are many, many, many passages throughout the book of John about Christ being sent. His being sent is so much a part of his work and his words and the good news that his very summary that we engaged in chapter 17, verse 3, of summarizing what is eternal life is a believing on the Father and Christ whom he has sent. There are passage after passage in chapter 6, four or five passages in chapter 6, four or five in chapter 7. There's five uses of it in chapter 8, two uses in chapter 9, one in chapter 10, one in chapter 11, two in chapter 12, two in chapter 13, one in chapter 14, one in chapter 15, one in chapter 16, and then chapter 17 is saturated with this notion of Christ being sent. Before we consider the importance of him being sent, I first want you to consider what does it say about something if you're not sent? What does it say you're about if you are not sent? It says that you have no authority. It tells us that you're not part of a bigger plan. You're a renegade, a maverick, a rogue missionary. And I'm going to tell you right now, when it comes to missions, that's a paradox. Rogue missionary. I thought it might be sort of like a dude that buys a machine gun and goes down to the army surplus and buys some camouflage utilities, fatigues, and puts on some combat boots and then goes around town just starting hosing people down and saying that he's in the army. He might even give, him, give himself some rank. That dude is not in the army. That dude is a criminal. And that's what it means to go rogue, to go maverick, to go renegade, apart from being sent. On the flip side, what does it say if you are actually sent? It says that your work is endorsed. It says your work is approved. It says that your work is accountable. Christ's work was endorsed, approved, and he was, everything he said and did, he was accountable. It says you're working within a big plan and you're not cooking something up. It indicates planning and preparation. One of my favorite passages in the book of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Listen, I'll just share it with you briefly. It's a great picture of mission and endorsement and being sent. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, sent, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ was sent as part of a big plan for big glory for a big God. Something else that's true of his being sent is that he was sent out of oneness. There are many references to oneness in the book of John here, just a couple of excerpts. Chapter 14, verse 10, this is where Philip says, Hey, Jesus, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, do you not believe that I am, watch, in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. This picture of them being inter-involved, interconnected, interpenetrating is all through our Bibles. There are three references here in John chapter 17. First in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they're in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. 
He engages it again in verse 21. He's praying for those who will believe us in the future, that they will all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then again in verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Our early church fathers had a name for this oneness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the name they gave it is perichoresis. It's ironic that I'm presenting this to you. We've talked about this before in the past, but it's ironic that we're engaging it in this setting. Christ or Christy and I have been here twice on two different occasions for a dance in this room. Funny, I know. <laughs> a dance in this room. That's what perichoresis is, is the dance of God. Peri comes from the word per, like perimeter, going around. And then choresis is where we get the word choreography. The dance of God is, in, is engaging the, the reality that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are so interpenetrating, so interinvolved, that oftentimes it's hard to tell who's doing what. Well, who created God? Well, who did what? Well, Father spoke, the Son went into action like the verb that he is, and the Spirit's hovering above the waters. Well, who did this? Well, I don't know, God did. It's too blurry to tell. That's perichoresis. That's oneness. Inter-involvement, interpenetrating. And that's the oneness that the Son was sent out of. It's important to realize he was sent out of complete oneness, meaning complete contentment. He wasn't sent out of some sort of deficiency. He was sent out of perfect oneness and wholeness. He was perfectly happy in the Father and Spirit's presence. God did not need to send his son to save us because he needed some worshipers. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. But the reality of the mission that Christ went on is that the the triune God is involved in this dance and as an act of mercy and for his own glory, he reaches out and down out of the dance and draws others into the dance. Christ was sent out of perfect oneness and out of an act of love and mercy, he draws people into the dance. He was sent. Secondly, he was sent to work. Chapter 17, verse 4 says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Work is so important to Christ that in chapter 4, verse 34, he says this of his work. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The work that he was sent to do is so important to him, it's like his nourishment. John chapter 9 is a great picture of his work. Turn there, I want you to look at this. John chapter 9. Starting in verse 1. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We're going to have a clue here, understanding what the work that Christ was about is. We must work the works of him who sent me 
while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. It's not the end of the story. Continues on in verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out of the synagogue as a result of him testifying that Christ healed him. And Jesus approached him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This is the picture of the work. He's not just healing physically some nameless blind dude, but he is displaying the work of God, and that is giving sight to the spiritually blind. The work that Christ came to be about is about opening the eyes of hearts and removing blinders. Certainly, he did some miracles. Certainly, he fed some folks. Certainly, he healed some people. But the greatest work seems to be opening the eyes of the spiritually blind to see his greatness and his glory. That's the work. Third, he was sent with words. Go back to John chapter 17 and look at verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know that in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I want you to imagine just for a moment his works without words. Consider the John 9 story that we just read with no commentary and no explanation. Consider they're passing by a gate or wherever it was. Beginning of John chapter 9, they see a blind man sitting there and they say, Hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his father or his parents? And Jesus, without a word, walks over to him, spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on his eyes, and then walks off. Imagine the work without explanation. First of all, this nameless blind dude would not even have been healed because he hadn't gone to wash in the pool of Siloam. So let's at least give him those words. Jesus turns to the blind man and says, okay, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he's physically healed. But imagine that work with no more commentary, no more explanation. He's healed physically. But imagine if Christ had not sought him out and shared with him that he's the Savior. Imagine if John had not heard the words, John that wrote this book had not heard the words, oh, neither of them sinned. This man was blind from birth so that the works of God might be on display through him. Without his words, you've got to understand this, his works are meaningless. Without commentary, his works would be empty. Imagine the temple cleansing without an explanation. Imagine the temple cleansing without you've turned my father's house that should be a house of prayer into a house or a den of robbers. Imagine it without explanation. The disciples just say, whoa, Jesus just had a bad day. Imagine the widow's might without explanation. The disciples would get nothing. They're just people watching missing out on the real gem that this poor woman gave more than any other. Imagine the kingdom parables untold. 
Imagine the heartbreak of seeing people who have a flash-in-the-pan faith and then fall away from it and having no explanation of what just happened. That's heartbreaking. But with the kingdom perils, we have an explanation. Oh, yeah, that's the way the kingdom works. Shallow soil. Weedy soil. Imagine the cross without explanation. All it would be is a tragic Friday. But he came with words. I don't know that we can even know him apart from the words that he brought. And fourth, he was sent to make known God's name. In verse 6, he says, I've manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. In verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. In verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. In verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. If you'd like to look over here, you can, but I'm already there. Exodus 33, listen to this, dealing with God's name. Moses asked God, he said, please, God, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He passes before Moses in verse 6 of chapter 34, and he's proclaiming before him his name. And here's what he says. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Awesome. But then he says, But who will by no means clear the guilty? And I'm going, uh-uh. Guilty? Guilty? But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If that's his name, then right off the bat with him presenting his name, I'm going, that's a conundrum. That's a divine conundrum where he's supposedly merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's going to take explanation, and that's what Christ did. He proclaimed and made known God's elaborate and diverse and manifold name. He came and presented his character. That takes years to explain. We know this about God. We know that his works are manifold. We know his wisdom is manifold. We know that his thoughts are vast. His power is immeasurable. His mercies are great. His mercies never come to an end. His riches are immeasurable. All these words, these are direct references to passages in our Bible that tell us that this God that we worship is massive. So it takes time to make known his name It struck me after three years walking with these 12, this 11 by this point, after three years, 24-7, engaging them every day that he would say in John chapter 16, I have so much more to tell you. What? You couldn't say it in three years? 24-7? When you realize what he's about as as, as, as part of his mission, He's proclaiming and making known the name of a massive God, then yeah, three years is a flash in the pan. A 
Of course, he's got so much more to tell them. It makes sense given the name he's sharing with them. You can bet that that takes significant investment in time. Now, here's what this has to do with us. Those four realities about Christ's mission. He sent, he sent to work, he sent with words, he sent to make known God's name. Those four realities have direct application to our mission. In John chapter 17, verse 18, Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, Father, so I have sent them into the world. His mission informs our mission. Like Christ was sent first, we too are sent. This is so important that Christ associates his very identity and validates his very message with his sentness. Unless we believe he was only sent to those 11 and you trust that he was sent to those 11 and is sending those 11 to their offspring and then sending those offspring to more offspring You've got to trust and know that we too are sent. It's who we are. We could be called the sent. And we too are sent out of oneness. Just like he prayed here in these passages in John chapter 17 that his people would be one as he and the Father are one. We, like Christ, was sent out of oneness, are sent out of oneness. What is it when someone wants to go to the mission field or wants to get some folks saved, yet they're renegades with no use for the local church? What is that? It's not a reflection of the mission of Christ. What would they escort people into if they themselves are not sent out of oneness? They would certainly not be escorting people into the oneness of the people of God, but they'd be escorting them into a fractured and factioned environment that's not what Christ prayed for here. Christ prayed for his people to be one, perichoretic, blurry, interinvolved, interconnected, interpenetrating, just as he and the Father and the Spirit are. And here's the crazy outcome when people are sent out of that. In verse 21, he's praying for us that we may be one just as he is one in the Father and that I and you and they also may be in us, watch, so that the world may believe you sent me. Do you realize sending someone out of oneness, oneness authenticates and validates the oneness and deity of Christ? It's also in verse 23. He says, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. It shows the world that our Christ is legit when someone's sent out of oneness. There's a missionary profile that I've had the chance to observe. It's not true of every missionary, but it's true of some that I've had the chance to engage. A missionary profile that sometimes has no use for the local church. And I understand it's probably a byproduct of having the pioneering spirit. It makes it difficult to be okay with the sending agent. But oftentimes missionaries, or sometimes missionaries, have little use for the local church. Sometimes missionaries have actual disdain for the local church. So they go it alone. And they'll go with agencies like the Navigators 
or YWAM or Campus Crusade. And while God can use those things, that's not God's best because they're not sent by the church. They're not sent by an accountable people. They're sent by a collection of believers that they're not accountable to. They're not sent out of a oneness. And I'm thankful that God can even use those agencies. They may find the Navigators, YWAM, Campus Crusade, you on the north side of town as a rogue, might find little pockets of belief here and there, but you will beget no living image of the triune God, a one people that are one with God and one with each other because you weren't sent out of that. Secondly, like Christ was sent to work, we too are sent to work. The work seems to be as-you-go sort of work. Remember how chapter 9 started? As he passed by. As-you-go sort of missions that's mindful of needs and opportunities that will display the glory of God. And that ministry doesn't have to have a name. In fact, my preference personally is that it doesn't have a name because then we can give man the glory in it. John chapter 9 didn't have a name. It was a recognized need. It was sort of like the dude that's laying at the pool of Bethesda. It's a recognized need that's met. That's missions. It might be a widow that lives across the street or a man going through a divorce at work or a friend struggling with homosexuality. It might be a single mom you met at daycare or a mother-to-be considering an abortion. It might be a man in jail or a poor family. The work surrounds us and we're sent to engage it. And as we engage that work, we need to know that it's God that opens the eyes of the blind and that it's God that removes the blinders and that we're just instruments. He illustrates that here in this chapter when he prays for you. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. All we are is instruments, just like the disciples would be instruments for the early church, instruments engaging those given to the Son by the Father. Third, like Christ was sent with words, we're sent with words. If we are to reflect the mission of God... We are missional to the degree in which we carry his word. Now, this is key. Doing nice things for folks without carrying his word to them is simply to pacify them and to postpone the inevitable judgment that they will face. It is doing them no justice. And in fact, it may be contrary worship because you may become the person or the thing that they place their faith and trust in. If your nice deeds are void of words, you take away from the message instead of perpetuate it is to leave those folks ill-equipped. It's like a Band-Aid on cancer to be the nice person at L3 with no words. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the Word. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit. It's of, of joints and marrow. It's the Word that is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Being nice and silent at L3 won't do that. Being nice and silent in Jordan won't do that. It won't do what the Word does. 
of dividing between soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the Word does. And if we're to be sent as Christ was sent, then we go with words. Last, like Christ was sent to make known the name of God, we make known the name of God. Seeing our Christ spend three years, 24-7, with 12 men especially, tells me that disciple-making takes time. It takes gobs of time, given the name that it's exposing. Years of steady diet, learning and engaging, enjoying the great name of God. Understanding this turns our home into a mission field, parents where tomorrow's church gathers every day. We're sent to make his name known to those little dudes and dudettes that share our last name. That's a mission field. And that's doing what Christ did, is making the name of God, the character of God known. It also turns L3 or Rubbermaid or Oak Creek Estates into a mission field where we build relationships. Watch, over years... We invest in people, invest in context, speaking the truth into their lives when we have opportunity as we pass by. It takes years to make known the name of God. As Christ was sent, as he was sent to work, as he was sent with words to make known God's mighty, massive name, we too are sent we're sent to work. And the work that we're about is to make known the massive name of God with words. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for these teachings on missions. I'm thankful that this morning we have a chance to set down a, a stone that we can come back to, a stone of reference that we can discern the missions that we want to be about, the missions that we want to perpetuate. Lord, I pray from this passage that we can see the urgency of our being sent. Lord, I pray that we can see that we are sent with works and that those works unfold every single day as we bump into people. Lord, I pray that we see that we are sent out of oneness and that we need to be about the work of oneness, being involved in other people's lives among the people of God, knowing and being known. Lord, I pray from this passage that we can see that missions is bringing people into the dance, not because of some deficiency, but out of grace and mercy, putting your goodness on display as you pass by. Lord, I pray from this passage that we can see that we are sent with words. And I pray for, th- for this body to, in- to know and engage and be equipped with the word so that we can be about that work at L3 or Rubbermaid or in Oak Creek or in Jordan or Kazakhstan or Mexico or on the north side of Greenville, that we can be about this work with explanation, with commentary that changed lives. Guard us from trite sayings that just make people feel better. 
Lord, I pray that we'll be about exposing and explaining and unpacking this life-altering, life-shaping, life-giving word. And Lord, I pray that we'll be patient like gardeners, not like mechanics wanting to fix something, but like gardeners tending to this little plot of Greenville or the plot of Kazakhstan or the plot of Jordan or Caddo or Commerce or Roy City or Rockwall. That we'll be patient recognizing that you are the God of the garden and that we'll sow good quality seed trusting and knowing that your sheep will hear your voice. And then your people will sw- smell a sweet aroma as we worship you out loud. Lord, I'm thankful for this chapter. Thankful for the truths therein. Ultimately, I'm thankful for the Alpha Missionary. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue our worship this morning uh, by observing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And uh, listen to these words of explanation. Out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus on the night when he, had, he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance, remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. This supper is for those who proclaim the gospel. We've just read. It's about his body, his blood given for us. And it's for those who are in Christ. We've just seen in John 17, those who the Father has given Christ and are in him. It is for those who are partakers in the sacrifice of his body and his blood. As we just read, his body broken. He took the bread and broke it. His body, he broke. We didn't break it. Freely given by him for his sake, for his glory. This is my body, which is for you. For those who have received the forgiveness of sins. Listen to Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. The finished work of Christ on the cross is what we're celebrating, is what we're worshiping when we enjoy this supper. I want, you to, I want you to hear about this new covenant, too. And it's foretold in Jeremiah 31. I'm going to share this with you. Just hang with me just a minute. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Listen to this. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write on their hearts, write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall, they shall be my people. You hear God's work in that? You hear his sovereign work in that? 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. You hear it? Those he's given the Son, they will know me. They will know my word. It will be on their hearts. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So the supper we're going to enjoy is for his people. If you're visiting with us this morning and you are one with us in Christ, feel free to share and partake of the supper. If you're not, we ask that you don't partake. The word says here you'll bring judgment upon yourself. The supper is for his people. Let's pray as we give more worship. Father, we thank you for your work that we have the privilege in Christ to proclaim. Father, I pray this morning as we enjoy this supper together as your people, it would be true worship. Father, it would help us to remember Christ, not just this day, but every day as we go as we move in your name and for your sake and for your glory. Father, we give this as an offering of praise and worship to you this morning. In Jesus' sweet name we pray. Amen. Now you might be able to hear me. His blood shed for us covers our sins. The blood of the new covenant the new covenant where God writes his word on our hearts. He knows us. He's our God and we're his people. Let's enjoy. I want to commend parents with little ones and commend little ones. Um, hadn't been our quietest mobile worship, but we're not concerned about quiet. Uh, I want to encourage parents that might feel like, man, I'm not even sure that was anything because I've been wrestling my kids the whole time. I didn't even hear the message, and I can put myself in your shoes. We've got three of them. They're kind of out of that stage now, but we have been in that stage. Christy wrestled them by, the, by herself for years. Um, you need to know that even if a child does not get the message, they realize they're part of something when they sit and they listen and engage the Word. They see mom and dad with a big book open. Or they see mom and dad trying to listen to something. It'd probably be sort of like the Israelite children moving across the wilderness that are traveling with mom and dad. They don't know what they're doing. But they realize they're part of something. They're part of a journey and a movement. And as they age, they catch pieces. It's sort of like learning a language. You can learn a language by sitting in a classroom. Or you can learn a language by immersion. And our children are learning this journey that we're on by immersion. So while we don't do this every week, we're okay with doing it some so children realize they're part of something. This is sort of a big picture of what's hopefully going home in your, on in your homes each week. As you're thinking, man, my kids aren't going to get that. Do it anyway. You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised what they get when you sit and just read together. Read a chapter of the Bible as a family and see what God does with that over months and years presenting the name and character of our God takes time.
And you got to think like a gardener. Don't think like a mechanic that gets things fixed. Think like a gardener that tends to the garden of little hearts and the garden of Monday. Just tend to it and let God be the God of that garden. Engage your children with something that matters. This is a big picture of that. And in the chaos, some of you got something. And those of you that didn't, we have it online. That's cool. It's online. So go engage it again if you missed it this morning. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss us. We'll be back at Crosspoint Fellowship uh, Campus next Sunday. So if you come here, we won't be here. Uh, we'll be there. And until further notice, we'll be there. Then we'll be somewhere else because the church travels. We're mobile. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this setting here on um, Lee Street. Thank you for the chance to enjoy you in this place where we've not enjoyed you before. I wonder if church has ever happened in this building as I'm sitting here thinking about it. I know it was a post office. I know there's been some dancing. I know there's probably been some other activities. I wonder if church has ever gathered here. Your name was enjoyed this morning. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for the finished work of Christ, for the chance to gather this morning as a people with every person here, even the littlest ones. We love you, Lord. We trust this, entrust the rest of this week or this next week to you as, an, as a sacrifice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.